Glenn Downs um, has been in the hospital throughout this week. Glenn's had a um, stroke several years ago and just really never made a recovery from that. He's got double pneumonia right now. I've been in touch with the family. Um, I'd just like for us to start this morning uh, just praying for Miss Barbara and praying for Mr. Glenn. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we uh, just take a, a moment here to pause and remember two of our beloved friends. Uh, God, we ask that you'd be with Glenn in the hospital room now, uh, that you would give him peace in his heart and his mind. Um, Lord, he knows where he's heading for eternity. Lord, may that give him um, comfort. Uh, also, God, we pray for uh, Miss Barbara, that you would just wrap her up in your arms of love and her family. Lord, again, that you would remind them um, of, uh, of the promise that we have of eternal life with you. And God, may that comfort this family um, in this week ahead. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, good morning again. Good to see y'all today. Um, I want to start with uh, taking us to Revelation chapter 20. So the end of your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, flip over there or it'll pop up on the screen here. We're going to get to our text for today in just a few moments before just a few words of introduction here about Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. It will all tie in together. So just hang with me for a moment. So look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. It's talking about things that are going to happen at the end of human history. Whether you're an amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist, whatever your millennial uh, thing is, um, there are, everybody agrees that this is what happens at the end of human history. And so that's what we're reading. We're reading about events that will take place right at the very end. Human history is going to be no more, and then a few events that happen on the, on the aftermath of that. So let's look at the, take a look at this, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and that's where he's been locked up, verse 8, and he, Satan, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. So the Bible is predicting here that there'll be this great Armageddon battle. There'll be a great battle of armies from nations of the earth. It will gather together around Jerusalem. They will lay siege, I suppose, to the city of Jerusalem. And then the Bible reports what's going to happen next to this coalition of nations. Uh, the apostle John says, middle of verse 9, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So this great fire ball is going to come down from heaven and just wipe out, incinerate those armies that are surrounding Jerusalem. Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. A couple more verses here. Skip forward to verse 11. So human history has now come to an end, and we're standing before the great white throne of Jesus in heaven. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. What we've been reading up in, in these verses, and even right here, is a report of total victory. That's what we're reading. A report of where God is victorious over the enemies of God here on the earth, and now that God is also going to be victorious over spiritual enemies as well. Uh, it says in verse 12 that the dead were judged according to what they had done. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Again, this is a report of what's going to happen at the end of human history and then events right on the aftermath of human history where this big Armageddon battle uh, takes place and then the, before the great white throne of God. Again, all of this is reporting that this will be the end of Satan. It'll be the end of the rebellious angels. It'll be the end of, of human suffering. It will be final judgment. And all of this culminates with death itself being destroyed. 
Today, we're going back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a text all about the resurrection. Paul's walking us, he's going to walk us right up to these final events that we just read in Revelation chapter 20. Our text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 23 through 25. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 23, talking about the end. Here we go. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You may be seated. All right, so um, now that we're all like, hmm, hmm, yeah, I forgot that all figured out, right? All right, so I'm going to go back to the beginning of this little section here in verse, or chapter 15. He starts at verse 20, and then work our way toward what we just read, okay? So let's go back to verse 20. It says, Paul writes, but in fact, notice that Paul has changed his tone in the former verses where he's talking about hypotheticals. Hey, let me, let me explore this concept of maybe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Let me give you some evidence as to why I think Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He's been talking hypotheticals up until this point, but now he's changed his tune when he rises at verse 20, and he says, hey, look, I've already walked you through evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I've already walked you through evidence of why we believe in a future resurrection of the dead of believers, that the cemetery over here is going to be a really active place one of these days. Um, And he says, but so he starts in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we've moved from hypothetical talk to now talking about fact uh, information. He says that Christ will be the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits were the first parts of the harvest. These were brought to the temple of God. Say the uh, Hebrew person was out sowing in their fields uh, some barley. They were sowing some wheat out in their fields. They would bring the grain offering to the temple of God, and they would offer that first fruits, that first bit of wheat, that first bit of barley, as an offering to God. And it was a guarantee, if you would, a promise of the harvest that would be coming behind that first little bits of wheat or that first little bits of of barley. Everybody with me? Concept of first fruits. So he's saying that Jesus is the first fruits of this great big giant resurrection. Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead. Eventually there'll be this massive great resurrection of the dead. He's going to talk about that here in just a moment. If you go down to verses 21 and 22, these two verses actually belong together. Jesus, uh, verse 22 actually restates, if you would, what he says in verse 21. It just gives some more clarity, some more detail of what he means in verse 21. So let's take a look at this. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, um, and has, I'm sorry, I was checking something. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. Now, who are these two men that the Bible was referring to here? Because he says in verse 21 that there's these two men. One of them brings death, one of them brings resurrection of the dead. Who are these two men? Well, he goes on to clarify in verse uh, 22, he says, For as in Adam, so the first man is referring to here, The one who brings death is Adam. Adam going back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Paul writes in one of his other letters to the Romans. He says, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Paul is merely stating here in Romans chapter 5 and over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 what he believes is common knowledge amongst the church. That this guy Adam... In the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of all things, sinned. And that when he sinned, his sin universally affected the rest of us. 
that calls us to have a fallen nature, a sinful nature. If you're a Reformed theologian, you would say, oh, yeah, we, not only do you have a sinful nature, but you also have condemnation that you're born into the world with as well. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now contrast that with what this other man brings. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 21. All of today is going to feel like this, okay? So just, just hang with me. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21. For as by Adam came death, by this other man, the Lord Jesus, has come, or has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22 clarifies who the man is. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, alive for everlasting life. He's not just talking about becoming spiritually alive, that we have our sins forgiven, that we're no longer standing in condemnation before God, we're no longer, that we are now justified in God's sight. We can walk into the presence of a holy and a righteous God claiming the blood of Jesus and feel safe and secure in his presence. That's not all of what Paul has in view here. Jesus also gives us bodily resurrection. I mean, that's all of 1 Corinthians 15. That's the context of the passage. Jesus doesn't just bring us alive spiritually, but he brings us alive, literally alive physically. While Adam brought us bodily death, the wages of sin is death, Jesus brings us bodily resurrection. Again, that's, that's what's in view here in this passage. Let me say that for you one more time. Adam brings us death, physical death. Jesus brings us physical life. Um, verse 23. Verse 23 begins a conversation about the order of the resurrection. So we're walk, working our way toward Revelation chapter 20 here in just a second. Verse 23 begins a conversation about the order of the resurrection of the dead, the events surrounding the resurrection. Verse 23 writes, But each in his own order. First is Christ, the first fruits. That's already happened. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the, the tomb was empty. Jesus physically, not just spiritually, but physically resurrected from the dead. Then, he says, the second phase or the second stage of this bodily resurrection, when the main harvest comes in. Remember, Jesus is the first fruits. He's that first little bit of grain that you bring before God and give him as an offering. But there's this great harvest that's going to come in behind him, behind that first fruit. It says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected from the dead. That phrase, at his coming, or at Jesus' coming, is what theologians refer to as the second coming of Christ. Some refer to it as the return of Christ. This is when Jesus is going to depart from heaven, come back to the earth, and uh, that is all talked about over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which um, I think that's where I'm going next. I don't know. I'm just going to go with my notes. So let me pull all this. Let me, let me, let me, let me take all this and put it on a slide for you. That's, I think that's what I got next. I got a slide for you here. Um, Paul says, this is the order of the resurrection events. Let's start there. You can see there on Easter Sunday morning, that's when the resurrection of the Lord Jesus took place. The first fruits, right? That first little bit of grain that was brought. Um, he didn't come back to life only spiritually. Rather, he wasn't just some apparition, some ghost. But he physically came back to life. Um, and he was in a changed body. Uh, his body was immortal. The body that was resurrected was immutable. It wouldn't decay, um, wouldn't die. Uh, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But again, the point being that Jesus rose from the dead physically. Skip forward to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, 
then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, I don't know if I had this for you, but can we go back to that slide? So you can see Easter Sunday morning, here's the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead, the first fruits, his bodily resurrection. At some point in our future, often to our future, um, the Lord Jesus will return and he will um, resurrect bodies physically. Um, physically, there'll be this great harvest of physical bodies. Paul does not offer any of the specifics here to the Corinthians about that great event, about that great waking up morning, if you will. Um, he had already spent about a year and a half with the Corinthians, uh, teaching them, instructing them. I would imagine on some of this subject matter of the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ. Um, but he did not do that same level of teaching with the Thessalonians, which is why he gives the Thessalonians some specifics about the return of Christ, about the second coming of Christ, about this day when Jesus appears in the sky. So let me real quickly just bounce over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. He writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. The people who are asleep are those who are dead. It's just a nice way of saying that somebody had died. It doesn't mean they were actually in some sort of soul sleep. It just means that their bodies were laid to rest. Their souls were with the Lord in heaven. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the second coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's telling us here that the day when Jesus returns to the earth, the earth will be active. There will be people living and breathing and running around the earth and doing all the things that people do. And Jesus will appear in the sky. He's about ready to give us some of that. And when he does, the people who are here on the earth We'll see these events take place. Verse 16, here's the events. The Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, a cry that will be heard globally, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. So here's Paul saying that the graves are going to give up the dead who are in them. Just the same, the sea will give up the dead that are in it. And the Lord Jesus is going to reconstitute those remains reconstitute those bodies and they will float up from the earth to meet the lord in the sky uh, this is not the zombie apocalypse this is the resurrection of the dead that is what he has in view here if you happen to be in a cemetery on the day when this happens i mean that place is going to go wild right it's going to it's going to be a happening spot all those reconstituted bodies floating up into the sky to rejoin their soul that is coming with the Lord Jesus from heaven. Back in verse 14, he said, through Jesus, or through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So when you die here on the earth, your physical body is laid to rest, but your soul goes on up to be with the Lord, and your soul is with him until the day he returns. And when he returns, the resurrection of the dead happens. Um, this is that great waking up morning. This is the day of Christ's return. This is the second coming of Christ. Verse 17, last verse here. Uh, verse 17, then we who are alive. So remember, we got people here walking around the earth seeing all this stuff take place. Then we who are alive um, at the time will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So those are the specifics about the second resurrection, the first resurrection, the first fruits being Jesus's on Easter Sunday. But then the second resurrection, uh, the day of Christ's return. Um, flipping back over to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's jump back over there real quick. Um, we don't get the specifics there, again, because we imagine Paul has already taught them on the this, on this subject matter. Um, verse, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. So notice the next words. 
So we've got, these, we've got this order of these events that have taken place. Jesus is the first fruits. However many years later, the resurrection of the dead. And then he says these words, then comes the end. Verse 24. Then comes the end. I mean, we're, we're walking right into Revelation chapter 20 here, okay? Then comes the end. So we've got Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago or more. We've got the day of Jesus' return when there will be the resurrection of the rest of us. Sometime off into our future. And then comes the end. Well, again, what is the end? The end is all that stuff we were reading in Revelation chapter 20. All that stuff about this final battle. All this stuff about um, uh, standing before the great white throne of God. All that sort of thing. That's what the end is. It's final judgment. It's the destruction of Satan. It's the destruction of death itself. It's the end of human history and the ultimate defeat of all of God's enemies. Verse 24 says, Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Now, I thought it might be interesting for me to do just a little bit of word study because a few things kind of, uh, some bells went off in my head when I was reading through this, studying through this. And so I went back into the original languages and was looking at it. And what I discovered is that those words, rule, power, and authority, are the same Greek words that Paul uses over in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks what we're really fighting against. So take a look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. You saw those words in bold in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12 or 24. Now look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. He writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is telling us here in Ephesians chapter 6 that there is a spiritual war going on around us every day. Whether you're sleeping or awake, that spiritual war is taking place across this planet. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, again, he says that the enemy that Jesus destroys at the end, remember, then comes the end and the destruction of these things. Certainly Jesus overcomes human power. Certainly Jesus overcomes human governments. But more than that, he overcomes enemies that are much more dubious. He overcomes enemies that are much more powerful than human governments. He overcomes the rulers, the authorities, the powers, and the darkness of this world at the end. So Paul qualifies the end, first of all, as this time when Christ will not just subdue but destroy the powers of wickedness in heavenly places. He says, secondly, verse 25, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Is death. Flip back over to Revelation 20 and verse 14. We're, we're doing this, okay? Here we go again. He says, at the end of all this, so final judgments have happened. Satan's been thrown in the lake of fire. He says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The resurrection of the dead's happened. Jesus gives us a body that is immutable, a body that is imperishable, a body that is immortal, just like the physical body that he received when he was resurrected from the dead. Death comes to a final close. Makes sense that Paul would share some of this with us in a chapter where he's talking about the resurrection of our physical bodies, doesn't it? All these things working together throughout the story of Scripture. All right, back to verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Again, I want to just focus in for just a moment here on the phrase, then comes the end. Then comes the end. 
There are lots of Bible teachers um, who will teach that there's an interval of time between uh, the return of Christ and that great resurrection day and the actual end, the final battle. And they would teach that there's this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. I actually talked about that. I think it's been a couple of months ago in our Job series. You can go back there and dial that back up if you want to learn a little bit more. Um, but there are Bible teachers that teach it. So Jesus returns, but then there's this thousand-year reign, and then comes the end. They teach like an, there's an interval there between these. Um, and that's possible. I mean, if you do a little word study on that word then in the Greek, apa, um, it does kind of make you think that there perhaps could be an interval of time. I mean, there's an indeterminate time between the first fruits and the return. And so they say just the same, there's an indeterminate period of time, between, well, a thousand years, a long period of time, between the return and the end. Um, that, that is possible. Um, for me, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, while there have been dissertations written on this subject matter, on that little phrase, then comes the end, the point that Paul is trying to make, sometimes, you know, we get into the trees instead of seeing the, the forest. Thank you. Seeing the forest. And, and the point he's trying to make here is that Jesus wins. That, that's the point. But what do we even need the specifics for at that, at that point? It's like Jesus wins, Paul's declaring here. Listen to these verses again, verse 24. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Verse 25, for Jesus must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. Again, the point of this passage is that Jesus wins. Will you say that with me? Jesus wins. Will you say it one more time like you really believe it? Jesus wins. <laughs> wins. All right. And so that is, that is what he's, that's what he's driving at here with these verses, starting at verses 20. Now, I, I love getting in looking at the trees. I do. But let's not miss the forest by looking at, by, by examining those trees. The point here being that Jesus wins. All right. Well, that is our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to take time out to stop, catch our breath, and uh, ask the question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Great question. I appreciate y'all asking that. Um, I, uh, I, I was sitting in my, in my room uh, a couple of days ago, maybe it was Saturday, and my youngest daughter walked in, and I was watching basketball. Some of y'all have been watching basketball the last couple of days and watching some of these upsets and things like that. Bracket is totally destroyed. Um, nobody did a bracket? I did a bracket. I have no bragging rights this year at all. Um, and she asked me, she said, Dad, she said, is that, is that the basketball thing that's going on? I said, yeah, that's it. She said, what's a bracket? And I said, she said, all the boys at school were talking about their brackets, and they're all comparing their brackets, and everybody's trying to brag about, you know, how they're doing better than somebody else's. I said, what's a bracket? So I explained to her, hey, look, there's 64 teams, and they all enter into this tournament together, and they play one another, and the bracket is a way of kind of funneling down to picking your winner at the end of all these, this, these 64 teams that go into this college basketball thing together, and I uh, tried to explain that. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20, is the Holy Spirit, through the instrument of the Apostle Paul, writing to inform you and I of God's tournament pick. 
That, 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 that's, what, that's basically, if I could, right? That's basically what, we're, what we've got there. He even tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 20 the specifics about how all of this stuff is going to play out to the very final end. Details about the final event itself. And that's the big takeaway that God wants for us to get from all this is that Jesus wins. Paul puts it this way over in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, beginning at verse 8. And being found in human form, the Lord Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does he receive for that? Verse 9, therefore, God his Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus one day every knee should bow in heaven. That's the will of the angels. And that one day every knee would bow here on the earth. That's the will of man. And that one day every knee would bow under the earth. That's the will of God's enemies, spiritual enemies. Um, Verse 11, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, God has told us the tournament winner. Furthermore, Jesus proved that he was the tournament winner by himself resurrecting from the dead the first fruits. He demonstrated to us that, hey, look, I'm guaranteeing, guaranteeing the harvest that is to come behind me. Perhaps you're here this morning, you never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friend, here's what God wants you to know from this. You can choose to bow before Jesus now, or you can wait until you stand and bow a knee before the great white throne of God, either way, you will bow. If you wait, your afterlife is going to be a very unhappy one. Something for you to think about. Now, what about the rest of us? What if I've already put my faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? What difference does this make to me? Well, it kind of hit me this week as I was traveling through this text and kind of trying to sort through it, reading through it. What if God had never told us about the resurrection of the dead? What if 1 Corinthians 15 was absent from the Bible? What if 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 wasn't there? What if Revelation chapter 20 was not there in the Bible? Wasn't there for us to read? Wasn't there for us to study? Wasn't there for us to learn any of this stuff about the return of Christ? I mean, Think about it for just a second from the point of the people that I sit and read all week long. They can't even agree, right? These Bible scholars can't even agree about what's going to happen. And we have the actual text itself here, right? Can you imagine the smorgasbord of ideas that would be presented about what's going to happen and where all this stuff in human history is going if they didn't at least have what we have here? Um, That aside, what if God had never told us about the great, great white throne judgment? What if God had never told us about the return of Christ? What if we were traveling through this life and had no idea that Jesus was ever coming back? That we had no idea about this great waking up morning? That is to say, what if the concept of our future was one where human history just rambled on forever and ever and ever? For me just speaking for myself here, I would find it difficult to get up in the morning and to go to work for that God. I would. 
I mean, knowing that God is never going to solve the problems of this world. He's just going to allow those things to go on into perpetuity. Um, knowing that God is never going to allow uh, human suffering to come to an end. That sin is just per- going to perpetuate forever and ever and ever. And things like murder and injustice would perpetuate forever and ever. Friends, in a scenario like that, Satan would never have to answer for his rebellion and his deceit. I mean, for me, again, I would find it hard to get up and go to work for a God like that. But that's not the God that we have. That's not the God that we serve. God declares that there is going to be a tournament winner. He tells us that this thing is going to wrap up. There is an order to it. It started with the Lord Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. Um, And that is a guarantee of the harvest to come. There will be a concluding chapter to this novel. I mean, basically, we'd be going forward into human history with this book that just keeps on writing, just keeps on writing. And God says, nope, there's going to be a closing chapter to this book. The enemies of God will be vanquished. The wicked will no longer prosper. Justice will be served. You know, I run into non-believers every so often who are incensed out of a sense of justice has to be served. Somebody needs to do something about this. And for some of them, I mean, it becomes a driving force in their life that if this doesn't happen, if justice is not served, I I mean, I'm just going to expend my every waking hour, every resource I've got to make sure that justice is served. Friends, I don't live like that. Why? Because I know who holds the future. I know that justice will be served eventually. And I'm able to rest in the present because I know that. The resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits, the return of Jesus. And then I love those words, then comes the end. They are words full of hope. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for uh, your servant, Paul, for what you accomplished through him and his life. Lord, he gave everything he had and placed it in your hands and said, I'm here to serve you. Do with me whatever you please. Lord, thank you for these words that he wrote under the inspiration and direction of your Holy Spirit. Words that were intended not just for a group of people living in a city called Corinth, but that, Lord, words that were intended to go out across the world to give hope to your people for the ages. God, we ask as we gather around this table, we're reminded of your broken body. We're reminded of your shed blood. Jesus, because you went to Calvary, because you conquered the grave, we have hope. Lord, speak to our hearts. Encourage us today in this time of communion. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.